Right, this is an easy question. Who wrote Tom Sawyer? Come along, come along. Mark Twain, of course, Mark Twain. Now, Mark Twain was a famous author, wrote in his diary, I can live on a compliment for two weeks. I can live on a compliment for two weeks. We all like genuine compliments. We may not get them, but we do like them. And do we even offer them genuinely to people? Well, in the Philippians passage we've got, Paul is in a really fine form. He's not telling people off or correcting them. He's thanking God for them. So, verse 3 of the first chapter begins like this. Think if you got a letter like this. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. For whether I am in chains, he was probably under house arrest, whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you sharing God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Jesus Christ. And this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is the word of the Lord. This morning's second reading comes from Luke, chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. This can be found on page 1029 of your Bibles and on the screens in front of you. That's Luke, chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Eturia and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him, Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked road shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all mankind will see God's salvation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Keith and Steve, thanks very much for those readings. Can I encourage you to keep your Bibles open, especially that gospel passage, Luke chapter 3, which was page 1029 if you've closed your Bibles. Well, it's a great privilege to be here and to be sharing with you this morning. For those of you who may be new, my name is Jit or Jitesh. 
depending on which is easier for you to remember. I'm the new associate vicar here, been in post about a month now, and uh, I believe this is the first time that I'm speaking to the 10.30 congregation. And so great to be here, great to be digging into this chapter. Before we begin, I'm going to pray for us all. Lord Jesus, we do thank you for your word given to us, and we pray now that by the power of your Spirit, we might hear from you, that we might perceive your glory, and that our hearts might be set on fire with love for you. In your name we ask this. Amen. Well, I'm going to start with a supposed conversation that happened in 1995 between a US Navy ship and a Canadian authority off the Newfoundland coast. And it goes like this, a radio conversation. The Canadians say to the American ship, please divert your course 15 degrees to the south to avoid a collision. And the American ship responds, recommend that you divert your course 15 degrees to the north. The Canadians respond, negative. You will have to divert your course 15 degrees to the south to avoid a collision. The Americans reply, this is the captain of a US Navy ship. I say again, divert your course. The Canadians reply, no, I say again, you divert your course. The Americans getting even more angry say this, this is the aircraft carrier, the USS Lincoln, the second largest ship in the United States Atlantic fleet. We are accompanied by three destroyers, three cruisers and numerous support vessels. I demand that you change your course 15 degrees north. I say it again, that's one five degrees north or countermeasures will be undertaken to ensure the safety of this ship. The Canadians reply, we are a lighthouse, it's your call. (laughs) Now, sadly, we're not sure that conversation actually did happen. I I like to think it did. It must have come from somewhere. But I wanted to uh, give that supposed conversation to you, because it highlights the contrast, actually, that we see at the beginning of Luke chapter 3, between worldly powers who are impressive and immensely belligerent, vicious, scary, intimidating, and then a very simple, humble messenger, John the Baptist. Let me read verses 1 and 2. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, Tetrarch of Ivichur and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, Lysanias, however you want to pronounce that, Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert. On the one hand, you've got a who's who of the world powers of the time. You've got over it all, Tiberius Caesar, a despotic emperor who was known for his madness at the end of his reign. And then under him, Pontius Pilate, the local governor of Judea, who was known for corruption and cruelty. And then alongside Pontius Pilate were three of the Tetrarchs, who are regional rulers appointed by the Roman Empire, puppets of the empire really, to kind of keep the peace and keep everyone on the Roman side. And then he mentions the high priests of the time, You've got Annas, who was the old high priest, but still held lots of sway. And Caiaphas, his son-in-law, who was the present high priest. And between them, they would have had complete sway over the religious conscience of the Jews of the time. And this group was formidable. You did not mess with them. You did not stand up to them. You did not contradict them. 
They held all the power and the prestige. But then comes along John, son of Zechariah in the desert. And he comes with a very simple message of repentance. He comes with a message from God, a message of salvation, like a lighthouse, proclaiming danger, danger, be warned. And like that lighthouse, unmoving, unchanging, deciding to stand his ground and preach across the country. And as he preaches across the country, he preaches that they should not only in their hearts repent, but actually do something as a sign of that, to actually undergo a baptism, an immersion into water, probably in the Jordan mainly, as a washing away, as a sign of repenting of sin. And we find that Luke, the theologian, quotes from Isaiah saying, this is exactly what Isaiah predicted about John. From Isaiah 40, he says, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him, every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low, the crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all mankind will see God's salvation. Now the imagery here is a bit lost to us, because we don't make long, long journeys on foot anymore. We have cars, we have buses, we have trains, we have planes, but in those days, actually, all the long journeys were probably done, unless you were wealthy, by foot. And so they knew what it was to be hindered by all kinds of obstacles, by mountains and ravines and valleys that we might think were picturesque if we're passing through them in a car, but for them, they're really annoying. They really impeded their journey. And what John the Baptist's mission in proclaiming this baptism of repentance to is was to straighten the way, create a clear path for Jesus the Messiah into their lives. To fill in every valley, to lower every mountain, to straighten out every crooked road, to remove every hindrance, that when Jesus appeared on the scene, his salvation might be seen clearly and his people respond as they should do and be saved from their sin. And what I want to do this morning, very briefly, is to highlight three hindrances that John the Baptist's ministry, his message, removed in the hearts of his hearers. Three hindrances to receiving Christ's salvation, which you're going to see very quickly in Luke, comes around the corner. And the first hindrance that he removes through his preaching is the hindrance of self-deception. And that's the attitude that I actually don't have any personal sin, Actually, my sin relative to others isn't much. I'm sinless, almost, and I don't need, therefore, any salvation. It's interesting that John's message comes a bit out of left field, from the desert, almost to pierce through people's blindness, to prick that bubble of self-deception that they might be under, that actually everything's okay, there's no problem. He, He, on purpose, comes out of left field, saying, no, there really is a problem, and you need to get yourselves sorted. And this self-deception that was probably existent in John the Baptist's time is very much existent in our time as well. I came across this quote from the famous actress Joan Collins, who said this, I have never done anything bad to anyone, never. And that is one of the things that I'm proud of. I've never hurt anyone, I've never been vicious about anyone. I've never taken any drugs, never tricked anyone. On the contrary, 
I can say that many people have done harm to me. I basically think that when one meets one's maker, if I do, there won't be anything that I've done that I need to be ashamed of, nothing. Now, as a minister of the years, I've very rarely met people like that. That takes a special type of megalomania. But I've often met people who say, well, relative to others, yes, actually, I'm okay, I'm a good person. I've got nothing to worry about in the future if God exists. I'm okay. Sin might be a problem for others, but not for me. And in one sense, they're right. Compared to mass murderers or compared to those who do horrible evils against innocent people, we are perhaps, or most of us, relatively okay. But that doesn't mean that we are. doesn't mean that we are. And I want to highlight two reasons why that is a problem, two places where that attitude comes from. Because the Apostle Paul says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. We we don't want to be deceiving ourselves. And the first place that attitude comes from, that we need to be aware of, is of simply using the wrong scales to judge things with. You might think we're okay relative to others, but the, the scale of measurement isn't us compared to others, It's, of course, us compared to God. And compared to him, we all are in trouble. Romans 3.23, very very famous verse, says, All have sinned and fallen short of the mark of God's glory. That's the scale. And on that scale, we're all in the same boat. Every single one of us in this room, in the same boat. No matter how good you've been in life, no matter how bad you've been in life, actually, compared to God's infinite perfection, Relative to that, well, we all have a problem. The Puritans used to use an image here to explain it. They asked you to imagine a man standing on top of a mountain, shouting down to someone at the bottom of a mine shaft, saying, I'm closer to the stars than you are. But then slowly looking up and realising, compared to the distance they both were from the stars, well, they're both very far away from them. And that's what's the case with us. Compared to God's infinite perfection, seen in Christ when he comes, we're very far away from him. Just match your lives up to Christ. Read the Gospels and see and you realise we're all in the same boat. And the second place this idea, this self-deception comes from, is that actually we presume that we can see clearly when often we can't. We can often think that right is wrong and wrong is right. We can be surrounded by a culture that has values that are alternate to God's values. We can think, okay, I'm okay according to the cultural values around me. But actually, there's not much sin in my life, especially compared to some other people. But that presumes that you can see your own personal sin, which often we can't. And often people around us can't. The only person that can really see it is God himself. And it's only exposed under a certain kind of light, and that's the light of his shining. And when he shines it on our lives, we see it, and we realise, oh no, there really is a problem in our life. My own experience is that as I've gone on as a follower of Christ over the years, that actually I've just become more and more aware of my sinfulness and lack of holiness. And I don't think that's because I'm getting worse. I hope not. I hope not. I think actually 
It's as you draw closer to the light of Christ, more of it is revealed, more of the dark patches, more of the muck in your heart is just revealed. He doesn't do it all at once the moment you're saved because you'd be overwhelmed. But gradually, he just lets you see how deep that pit of tar is in your heart, all that sin that is actually there. That actually there really is a problem that he exposes and lets you see gradually, slowly but slowly. So that was the first hindrance that John's clear-cut message seeks to remove, that hindrance of self-deception, that wrong attitude, we're okay, there's no sin. The second hindrance is that of hardness of heart. A hostile charge that's often levelled against Christians and the church, which has been levelled against me personally in, in debates and questions and answers is, who are you to judge for sin? Who are you to judge? Yeah, I might have problems, but who are you to judge? And of course the answer is, I'm no one to judge. I'm in the same boat as you, mate. It says that the word of God came to John. The emphasis is there, the word of God came to John. Actually, John was just the messenger. Don't shoot the messenger. The real question is, why does God think your sin is a problem? Why does he think you need to be saved from it? That's the question at the heart of many people's objections. And the simple answer is this, that actually God is a just God. He's just, he's full of justice. And because of that justice, wrongdoing must have a consequence, it must have a punishment. This is a hard thing for many modern ears to hear. Many in the press will try and condemn the evangelical church for saying things like this. But if we're honest, if God really exists, we wouldn't want another type of God. We wouldn't want a God who wasn't just, who didn't show justice. The Yugoslavian theologian Miroslav Zolf lived through the atrocities in the 90s in his own country of Yugoslavia during the Civil War. And previously, he had huge problems about the idea of God's justice and wrath. Then he said this, My last resistance to the idea of God's justice and his wrath was a casualty of the war in the former Yugoslavia region where I come from. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people shelled day in and day out. Some of them brutalised beyond imagination. And I could not imagine God not being angry. Or think of Rwanda in the last decade of the past century. 800,000 people were hacked to death in 100 days. How did God react to the carnage? By refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirming the perpetrator's basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in the spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. I want you to bring this home by asking you questions of your own heart. When you flick on the TV and see what's going on in the world, or open a newspaper and read, and only given day, the awful things, 
What are the things that well up in your heart? Probably love and compassion, but also that cry, there must be justice. There must be justice in the universe. And if that's a cry that we can have, well, imagine the cry in God's heart at all wrongdoing, at all things that are done that hurt others. Be hypocrites to not apply this to ourselves and realise we have a problem as well. The Russian author Alexander Solzhenitsyn said this, the dividing line between good and evil cuts through every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of themselves? You may think there are good people out there and there are bad people over there and there's a dividing line between the two. As soon as you do that, you realise that dividing line cuts straight through your own heart. You're a mixture of both as well. And therefore, your sin is a problem before a just and holy God. But the good news, which we'll see in the Gospel of Luke very shortly, is that as much as God is angry and full of justice towards all sin, including yours, so is he full of love and compassion and mercy towards who you are. And so he decides he's going to come and sort it out. His own divinity and humanity, Christ comes as the saviour to save us from our sins, taking it on his own shoulders, getting rid of it, getting rid of the consequences by taking them himself, that we might be forgiven, that it may no longer be a problem that we face, that instead God just pours out his love in our hearts day by day. That's the good news. But to realise how good it is, you need to realise what a big problem we have. The third hindrance, very quickly, that John the Baptist's preaching removes is that of complacency. Complacency that actually, oh, who cares? I've got a great spiritual history. I've been walking closely with the Lord. It's all okay. And this, of course, was the problem of the Pharisees, who we see in other Gospel accounts of the same message, came to John straight away saying, I need to be baptised as well. And he accused them, saying, actually, you're doing this as an act of religious self-righteousness. You don't really believe this. You've lost the plot. You've stopped believing that actually you need salvation. You're trusting in your own efforts now, in your own righteousness in other people's eyes. And this is a perennial danger for each generation of God's people, that having started with the gospel, we can graduate from it. We can lose sight of our need for salvation. We needed to be saved the very first day that we knew Jesus. We've needed to be saved every single day since then, and we will need to be saved the day that we stand before him. It never goes away, this need for God and his salvation. We never somehow move on to greater and higher things. This is what we need. John Newton, the writer of Amazing Grace, a former slave trainer, once at the end of his life very famously said, my, ne- my memory is nearly gone, but there are two things that I remember. That I am an awful sinner and that Jesus Christ is a great saviour. Remember these things day by day. This is what we need. This is what we need. Well, let me end. I've got to end, I think. 
with a story, really, about what can happen if we do get real about our sin in our lives. And Advent is the time for that, actually. It's one of the seasons in the church calendar where we get very real about what's wrong in our lives. For the generation of John the Baptist, responding to this message of repentance would mean that they got to receive Christ as their saviour when they saw him and the joy and the glory of his presence in their life as they put their trust in him. And I want to suggest the very same thing is true for us today if we take these things seriously. John Hyde is uh, someone often known as Praying Hyde because he was known for his prayers as an American missionary to the Punjab in India in the 19th century. And also, wherever he spoke, he seemed to see revival in God's people, the two obviously linked. And he tells an account of one year, he was asked uh, to give an address at a convention in the Punjab, and the following happened. He got up and said, I thank God he's given me no message for you today and then sat straight back down. Wouldn't you love that if that happened to you? No. The convention convener then announced, well, the Holy Spirit is leader of this meeting, and then prayed for the Spirit to come. And then Hyde recounts what happened next. The people began to speak as they were moved by the Holy Spirit, and there was liberty but not license. Conviction of sin came over the people like a tidal wave, Many were in great mental agony and intense physical strain as the felt near presence of God settled on the congregation. Men and women forgot each other as the divine searchlight was flashed on their lives. Some began to confess sins that blazed in their hearts and others, as they arose to speak, trembled as hidden sins were brought to light. Brought to light. Then it was that the sunshine came and flooded the place, and joy was depicted on many faces. Mouths were filled with laughter and song. Then it was we began to, what it, we began to realize what it is to experience joy in the Holy Spirit. If you want God in your life, if you want more of him, more of his closeness, his presence, his joy, there's, very, there's one very simple thing you can do. You can go to all the conferences you want to, you can subscribe to all the programmes. But if you get real about your sin, if you remove every hindrance to Christ being your saviour, you'll get to know him as your saviour. It's in his name, it's what he does. He's a great saviour. He's very good at it. Saving us, healing us, cleansing us and bringing his joy to our lives. And here this morning, if you know that there are particular things even as I've been speaking, that you know the divine searchlight has just been on, I commend you to not want to run away from that. I invite you to stand and we're going to pray together.